if kids can be a proactive part of the solution, then we can kind of move back into society in, in a better way. Okay, today's guest on the Gravity Podcast is Dr. Jen Welter. Dr. Welter is a groundbreaking, barrier-busting force of nature. She's a female trailblazer, a sports pioneer, PhD, passionate leader, world-renowned speaker, entrepreneur, and source of inspiration around the globe. She tackled her football career with fearless tenacity and an unprecedented track record of pioneering first, building on her remarkable career in women's football that included two gold medals with Team USA, four world championships, and eight all-star selections. Dr. Jen busted into the men's game as the first female running back signed to a men's professional team. Blending her passion for the game with a powerful, unique communication style, she broke through the biggest boys club of all, the NFL, as the first female coach in the league in the Madden NFL 20 video game. Crystallizing her journey into a playbook for overall success, she published Play Big, Lessons in Living, Limitless from the first woman to coach in the NFL. She founded Gridiron Girls, the first national movement for girls in flag football. She has been honored and quoted by President Obama as a female pioneer and role model. She has coached everyone from kids in sports camps to C-level executives on how finding your voice and having fearless conversations can fuel positive change. Okay, great. So Jen, it's great to have you here on the podcast. I've been excited to have an opportunity to uh, hear your full story. I've certainly followed along and familiar with it. And it's just uh, great to, to have you. And, and I'm excited to, to hear uh, all of it. So thanks for being here. <laughs> it's so good to be here with you. I, I, I love your philosophy about not just kind of looking at the highlights. I always say the journey is more interesting. Because the uh, the backstory to get to any highlight was definitely um, interesting to get there. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It, it really does. It's kind of cliche, but you know, it it really is about the journey. Um, certainly, that can be tough. It can be hard. It, in hindsight, you know, it's easy to say that, but really, it is the the journey that makes the the full experience what it is. So let's let's start as we do. Uh, at the beginning, tell me a little bit about kind of your early childhood, what your family life was like, kind of anything that really jumps out. Yeah. So I was born in Vero Beach, Florida. So I'm an actual Florida native. They do exist. Um, they are rare, like Bigfoot, but you know, there are a few of us. And I was born to a small family. My dad was from New Jersey, my mom from Virginia, my dad being a um, Vietnam veteran who um, actually was um, a medic in Vietnam and won a silver star and two bronze stars. So his warrior mentality definitely kind of imprinted my psyche. And, you know, I lovingly say I pulled a code from it because he would tell me stories, not how most people envision them, where it's like, oh, you went through something. Here I have a story, something similar, right? More so you would get that, and I don't know how many of you have been around war heroes, but they talk when they want to. And so he would tell me these stories from Vietnam that just seemed so larger than life to me. And they really were like a, a moral compass. Um, and then my mom 
was definitely the person who humanized him. Um, she was an artist and just the most loving woman that you ever met. And probably at any times when, you know, one of the things I, I know in hindsight, but I didn't necessarily pick up on as a kid is she was always working to reinforce that connection. My dad had um, lost his father when he was three or four. So he always feared not being a great dad. So my mom would reinforce the hero and the connection. And she really filled in a whole lot of the blanks. So even if he was a little bit distant at times, um, she was always very warm and loving. And so in my child mind, they were a great combination, but one that I really was left with a lot of imagination into how the world works. It wasn't like they were hands-on and like everything that I ever did. Um, I also had an older sister named Rachel. Uh, she's two and a half years older. So I think that's where my inherent competitive nature comes from because I never understood why her legs were longer and why she could do things that I could not yet do. That whole, I'm going to grow into it thing was never, never quite there. And seeing as how I'm, you know, still five foot two, I think that was probably good because I always, you know, was like, even from a little kid, I had to work harder to keep up. So I was kind of this independent little child who did a lot of things on my own and had a very kind of determined sense on what I wanted to do, right? I remember coming home to my dad. It's like an infamous story in my family. And coming home to my dad when I was little and I had learned about Joan of Arc. And I came home and I said, Daddy, it's a really good thing I was born now. And he was like, okay, Jenny, why? And I was like, they would have burned me at the stake because I mean, why wouldn't she wear the same stuff that they would and lead a battle? Like it just, I was like, oh my gosh, you know, I was totally her. And so I actually had to go back to my dad at one time and I'd be like, did I really say this? Cause I kind of remember this. And he was like, oh yeah. And I said, what did you think? And he goes, that was just you. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that's really interesting. Let me just kind of um, respond to some of that and and um, let's dig into it because there's so much there. It's really uh, amazing, really, to think about. So, you know, your your father is this this vet and and I've got kind of like a image of how he, you know, was and the battle and the, you know, the trauma the uh, of, of what, you know, you come back with carrying that in and then your mom being this like really like offsetting, loving, nurturing, right? And and creative artist and and you know kind of then the sister piece, the competitive juices and you kind of taking on all of that and then this this kind of early like this is who you are. You really are like why wouldn't I do what everybody else does, right? Which you know, as we fast forward, it's like super obvious, like you lived into that, right? Amazing. But but tell me, like, how did that take shape when you were young, young, all of that? Like, what what did you get into? What did you start to kind of gravitate to? Was it hard? I mean, to be a trailblazer even now, but at a young age, especially, you know, really 
uh, difficult, I would imagine, but I don't know. Tell me what that was like and how it kind of took shape for you. Yeah, so I think it it made me really competitive as a kid and very, very self-motivated. My parents weren't ever the ones who were like, you have to do this, you have to do that. And yet I was always like, you know, I still say that with a PhD in psychology, I like to um, solve human puzzles, but that's how I was as a kid even, right? Like I was on, um, in like sixth grade, I was at nationals for linguistics and math, math equations because they were games and I wanted to figure them out. And if I didn't like them, I, I wouldn't do them at all. Like there were three games you were supposed to play and it was like linguistics equations and Mr. Presidents. There was no Mr. Presidents for me. You couldn't, I, I couldn't have told you anything past Lincoln was on the penny, right? Because it was just disinterested to me. So it was very like kind of hard line. And my mom, you know, she gave me this, this beautiful way of creating in the world, right? She created beauty and she still does in our, in our house. I mean, we had like this, like still my favorite house was when I was a kid. She used to do stained glass windows when I was young. And so there was this gorgeous lion stained glass window over the attic that I always said was like the coolest thing because he was like looking out and protecting the whole house. And my mom gave us like a guardian lion, right? Like this is the wild creativity that was, you know, kind of in my brain. So my mom brought this this beauty and ability to create out of anything. You know, she was like, she was almost like not real to me in all the things that she could do, um, whether it was like saving plants and had the green thumb and, you know, could create all these beautiful projects. So I always saw that there was beauty in the world, right? And my dad was this invincible hero. Not only was he a, a war veteran, right? But he also was a doctor. Um, so he was a chiropractor and he used to race cars. So people think that the like football playing doctor that later became me was insane. And I'm like, yeah, not so much, right? Like that was, that was the model that I was in. And I was definitely very much a chip off his block with like, some of the best of my mom, whereas my sister, you know, really went more into, you know, she ended up going to Rhode Island School of Design and, you know, followed the artist path more. But you can see like, this is, Mm -hmm. these are some of my projects um, Mm -hmm. kind of around me because I always, she taught me you could create beauty. If you couldn't find it, Mm. you could create it. So I was a little fearless in that. And so as a kid, all of these projects, like, When I got into one, it was, I was lost in this great world, right? And I think that's something that that you could still say today and really imprinted as a kid. Like if I was going to compete in academics, I was going to be a great student. If I was going to play a sport, I was going to really excel at it. And thankfully, my parents kind of structured things, you know, to help me do that. And then art you know, she celebrated our art around us. So, you know, she would frame finger paints and put it right next to a Picasso if she had it, right? Because it wasn't different to her. So there was just this real foundation 
that made me able to be very curious. And the only thing I think at times was really hard is that I really did do a lot of that stuff on my own. There was very little like kind of structured guidance unless you'd say, okay, I want to be a tennis player. We're going to give you a tennis lesson. So this kind of like, you've got to figure out mentality is something that has definitely been with me. So, so there's, yeah, I'm, I'm intrigued with a lot of what you're saying. This is really fascinating. And I'm a big believer that uh, we're all artists and that, you know, you've had the beauty, the, the luxury of having a real artist um, as it's defined yep. as a role model. Right. But um, I believe that, you know, we're all kind of born to be creative and the, the, definition of creativity has become very narrow in our society, right? It's really more as a fine artist, right. which is what most people believe when they hear the word artist. But but what I'm hearing is more about creation, about creativity, right? And you are, I think, using, although I'm looking at your background, you clearly also like to use your hands and create art, traditional art, but it sounds like you were really more kind of taking that creativity to create your own life, Mm -hmm. which I think is really the ultimate kind of form of creation is how do we want to create our lives to be? And it sounds like, you know, your mother's influence along with your, your father and your sister, this kind of competitive side has you in a creation mode at a young age that's going to like carve your own path. For sure. And and I think that's, you know, a really important thing that I, I don't know if we celebrate as much as we should sometimes for kids, right? Like think about, you know, I think about the worlds that kids create, right? Like I had a guardian lion over my house and I believe like, man, that's so cool. My mom made us a guardian and then my dad's a hero. So like, you know, nothing could ever hurt me. And, you know, there was this world that I could create and kids do that so naturally. And if we don't nurture that, I think sometimes we lose the inherent beauty that we're really born with, right? Like I, I pulled my moral code out of my dad. He, he read my book. It's so funny, like how you get hindsight and He read my book and I talked about how some of those things and his stories had impacted me. And I have so many more that like, I'm I'm like the sequel is, is even way more interesting. And I asked him what he thought. And he said, Jenny, I had no idea you were so deep. Mm. Right. And I don't know that he realized how profoundly some of those things had given me not a rule-based, like, you have to do this, but, like, really a, a philosophy of life. Like, mm-hmm. one of the, the stories that I will never forget and I know has allowed me to do some insane things because though people see some of the, like, cool highlights, the journey there was insanity, right? Like, these, these things around me, I taught myself how to do after I had left an abusive relationship and lived out of my car and I had no money, Mm -hmm. but I knew Mm -hmm. I could create beauty. And I knew if I was going to restart my life, 
I couldn't live like I felt like I was less than. So I, you know, took branches from outside and plywood and, you know, these lovely flowers are like Reese's cup wrappers dipped in paint. Mm -hmm. I mean, and I just Mm -hmm. found a way to take what I could do and make it beautiful. Right. But like, Mm -hmm. you know, we, we need those things in life. Right. But my dad's really like, you know, here's this guy in Vietnam and he would always tell me just parts of the story, right? Because he didn't want like the, you know, the horror of, of war to be there. But he has a very rich interior mind, which I, I'm certain I get from him. His, you know, his dad died at three and then he had a stepfather who was abusive. So he used to hide from his stepfather by reading, right? So he would get away from the chaos by reading. And really that world became his world. And so when he got into the army, he basically like, those were his brothers. Like he, he would do anything for them. And he was great in an overwatch position because he could read and hide for hours, right? So he kind of told me these things. But I remember asking him like, like you know, about people dying. And he was like, you know, Jenny, when you're, you're around it that often you get, you, you can see almost like a black cloud over their face. And, you know, the kid, I just kind of was like, okay, well, daddy, what would you do if you saw the cloud over my face? And he was like, honey, I would pick you up and keep you with me and keep you safe. Well, that's not the end of a conversation with a little kid. That's the beginning. So I was like, okay, but what about if we stepped on an elevator? And he was like, well, we wouldn't get on the elevator, you know? And he kind of went through all these, these situations with me and he had an answer and it gave me this belief as a kid that my dad could sense danger. And if my dad could sense danger, then he would also have an ability to know if I was stepping into something that, you know, maybe wasn't something you wanted to step into. And that really played its way throughout my career, especially as an athlete. You know, here I am always one of the smallest, right? Five foot two, I was not the first round pick, right? No one ever looked at me and said, you'll be a great football player one day. That was just not the narrative. But I was fearless in how I approached it. And, you know, I always believed that I was doing the right thing and he would know it if I wasn't. And it was to the extent, and I mean, it probably still is in ways so imprinted in my psyche that I remember calling him the night before the press conference to announce that I was going to play men's pro football. And I was so scared to tell him and my mom because not that I, they had never told me you can't do this. That's just not the way they are. But I was like, well, what if, what if my dad says for the first time, like, you can't do this, you're going to get hurt, right? And I was like, I, I, you know, I didn't want them to find out in a press conference, but I also didn't want them to tell me what, like, I was afraid he might say. It was like, nope, this is the time, like, oh, whoa, little, little cloud over your face, like, maybe this is a bad idea. And so I called them and I'm like, in a break from the gym, I have like five minutes And you know how parents can start to tell like life stories about everything else. You know, oh, I ran into so-and-so at the supermarket. I'm like, nope, mom, dad, 
really, really got to tell you something. Really, really got to know. Okay. Yep. And they're still talking. And then I was like, please stop. I don't want you to hear about this tomorrow at a press conference. And they were like, did you say a press conference? Like my parents are not in that world regularly. Like the, the, the press conference, like we're from small town. Right. And I said, yes, tomorrow they're going to announce that I'm going to be the first female to play running back in men's pro football. And my mom immediately jumps, Jane, you're not, you're not going to get hurt, are you? And my dad goes, no, Nance, she's not going to get hurt. She's a tough cookie like her dad. And I was like, oh, I'm going to be okay. Right? So I, I, I'm like, oh, this is so amazing. That was way better than I thought. And like, I'm out. Right? Next day, my phone rings really early. And my dad is not a phone guy. Right? He's not going to pick up the phone and call you. And, you know, it says Popsy on the phone. I pick up and he's like, oh, Jenny, I was, a, I was a little sleepy when you called last night. Um, did, you, did you say you were going to play pro football against men? And I said, yeah. And he goes, well, Jenny, you're, you're not going to get hurt, are you? And I was like, stop it right now. Stop it. Mm-hmm. Dad, I need the tough army veteran back on the phone that was on there last night because I can't handle this right now because I'm about to watch this press conference. And he goes, well, you are my baby. And I was like, well, don't baby me now because I can't handle it, (laughs) right? But it really was this belief from that story as a kid that gave me kind of this fearless mentality throughout my playing career. Yeah, well, let me just- Always be from harm. Yeah, let, let me just jump in on that, you know, because yeah, you, you know, you you kind of fast forwarded to um, you know, you playing football, you know, professional football, men's league. And I, I laugh that, you know, the thing that you think maybe uh, stood out about that is that you were five two, uh, right? It's like, well, okay, let's not ignore the fact that you are a woman playing at five two. Right. Five, two. Yeah. Like you don't see a lot of five, two professional football players, you know, in, in any league, but let alone, you don't see women five, two. Um, but, but before you got there, before yeah. you got there and I get the courage, you know, that it took and the role modeling that you've had. Um, but when did you decide football was the thing for you anyway? Like where did football come in and how? Yeah. It, again, it was probably this, this wild imagination of mine. I, so Vero Beach is a small town. And, you know, it is one of those places like Friday Night Lights is real. And you know that you're in Ohio. Like right. it is it is the whole town. Yep. And in Vero, like the whole town would shut down and we would go watch football. And I remember seeing these guys out on the field with those pads and the helmets. And to me, they were real life superheroes, right? And the lights in the stadium were like the brightest I'd ever seen. And I just remember wanting to be one. Mm -hmm. And the funny thing is, is like for a long time, it was like that unrequited love, right? Because it was also probably the first place that I remember somebody telling me, girls can't do that, right? Mm -hmm. Like that this, this was a, the, girls and boys aren't the same, right? My dad didn't raise me that way. My parents didn't raise me. We went fishing all the time. They'd be like, oh, fish up. It was like, not like there was a pink rod and a blue rod and you, know, right. you got small bait 
it was like, you either catch it or you don't. And so you step up. And so I never really had this boys versus girls mentality and football was that place. Mm -hmm. So I loved it probably from a distance. And it wasn't like it was early heartbreak, right? It was just like, that's terrible. And so, you know, but then you do everything else. You know, I was a multi-sport athlete. I played pretty much everything else. Um, How old were you when you started playing football? 22. Oh, so you didn't play... You know, you didn't play in high school. You didn't take it on until later. So it was just oh, a yeah. part of your life. And and okay, so let let's come back to that because I'm also really curious about this PhD. So you you go to college, multi sport athlete. Are you playing sports in college, or kind of tell me a little bit about kind of what you start studying? Knowing football doesn't come in until 22. You know what what happens before that. Yeah. So when I went to college, I think one of the hard things for me was I was always curious. And sometimes that meant uh, you didn't necessarily have the guidance other people had. You know, I was a great soccer player. I was a captain two years in a row, all that stuff, traveling team. And yet no one ever really explained to me that these schools didn't inherently know you existed, like that you actually had to like, you know, send them tape and do all that stuff. So you know, and I was one of full disclosure. I was in the first graduating class of my high school because I thought it would be cool. I didn't realize that that meant just nobody would know about you. And so, like, I really didn't have much of that. I was one of two people in my graduating class to go out of state for high school, but I didn't even apply to a Florida school because I watched so many people never go. I knew I wanted to not be in 13th grade and come back to bureau every weekend because that just didn't compute. So I had to go far away mm-hmm. um, and I ended up going to Boston College because of the business school. So psychology was nowhere on my radar. I went to BC. It was D1. Um, I didn't even know that you could walk on or try. So I never did. It wasn't like somebody told me I couldn't. I just, I didn't even know that that was an option. I thought, you know, you missed the window. And then I found rugby. Um, I had never seen rugby before in my life. And all of a the sudden, there was this sport that was soccer meets football, and you got to tackle, and you didn't even need pads. Oh, it was game over. I ended up playing all four years of rugby at Boston College, ended up getting recruited for the under-23 national team in rugby, at which time I think they realized how small I really was because you know I was a prop in rugby, and everybody I was going up against was at least twice my size, but I was really well coached. And unfortunately, the national team coach said, you know, Welter, at this level, I can teach other people to do what you do, but I can't double your size. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. So this to me, that was crushing. I had Mm -hmm. always had belief that I was meant to be this epic athlete, right? Like Mm -hmm. always did, always competed, you know, was working out at 14. I was lifting weights when no other girls were doing that, you know, just different things with that belief. Mm -hmm. And so not making the national team to me was the end of a dream. Mm -hmm. Um, So I took my business degree. I got a business job as a headhunter. And I remember telling my mom, though I was good at it, something was missing. And I felt like I was dying a little bit each day because this couldn't be what life was meant to be for me. And I was playing flag football on weekends. Full disclosure, coming from rugby, I never really got good at the flag part. So they get a call from 
the women's tackle team up there, the mass mutiny. And they asked the league if they had any girls playing flag who they thought could play tackle. And they gave them one name and it was mine. And so I went to an open tryout and made the team that day. And when I did, I made a simple yet really big promise that really shaped my career. And that was that I would step up to every challenge that the game put in my way. Mm. Because there really wasn't a path for women in football, right? Mm -hmm. There was no, you know, we weren't getting paid to play. In fact, we were paying to play or fundraising to play. But I just knew in my heart that that was what I was meant to be. Mm -hmm. And, you know, at that time, and they still do, you know, football was referred to as the final frontier for women in sports. Mm -hmm. And to me, that was a challenge. It was like, if we can win in football, if we can do it the right way and and we can play the same game here, can't we do anything? And so I always just looked to create ways along the way that I would be prepared for challenges that I couldn't necessarily have predicted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, and I, and I, and this is really great. And I'm, um, I'm really anxious to kind of hear like the, story about how you navigated that because you make it sound pretty you know you're determined the final frontier this is it you're doing it and i know you're hard charging and nothing was going to stop you from from being a little kid all the mm-hmm. way so it makes sense but but weren't people along the way you know making this very hard on you weren't some of the challenges oh, you know beyond I- the physical piece of it the the you know what's the mental emotional piece like you know being that groundbreaking that pioneering you know how hard was it what you tell me about that there are so many times across that journey where it it felt like there was no next step right there's this initial i think camaraderie of the like oh we can you know we can grind through it we can we can tough our way through anything right like we've all seen it we've all had hard times in our life And, you know, we're sleeping on couches We're you know, I left my quote unquote high paying business job because they were afraid I, if I played football, I would mess up my pretty face. And, you know, I very politically correctly told them where to take that job because I didn't like it anyway. Right. Um, Right. And, and thankfully for me, I had been in fitness. Um, I first got certified to teach aerobics when I was in high school. So I just went fuller into fitness Mm -hmm. um, because I could adjust my schedule to be able to do that. But even in my first year, like I remember I'm coming from rugby, right? And I'm, I'm a stud rugby player. I could tackle anybody. I don't know Mm -hmm. the football rules yet, which are very different, Mm -hmm. but I could tackle anybody. Mm -hmm. And so I was, you know, and everybody who comes into football as a woman is, is essentially a rookie because there's no pipeline. So at that level, you know, you're taking great athletes and teaching them football, right? So I was the stud recruit who was fearless and could tackle anybody. And the defensive coordinator back then took an interest in me. I was thrilled as an athlete. I just didn't realize that his interest was not athletic. He was not attractive in any way, shape, or form to me. And yet he wanted to watch tape or go over something. And I completely didn't think about it any other way. And then when he tried to kiss me and I was like, whoa, like that's a conflict. Mm -hmm. He quits the next day. 
Mm. So the coach quits over me. I'm a rookie. And who knows what he told the head coach. But all of a sudden, Mm -hmm. I went from stud recruit who like was going to be the next great football player on this team to like the spawn of Satan, right? Mm -hmm. And the head coach would flip out if I was anywhere near like going in. So Mm -hmm. I found my way to the depths of the bench, Mm -hmm. right? Like the furthest edges of the bench where like if I could hide under it so that he wouldn't be like enraged, it would probably have been better. And the only place that they would let me play was on kickoff because that was kind of the place nobody wanted to play anyway. Like you've got to run, you know, 50 yards and just tackle somebody, which actually was perfect for me because I didn't really know that much yet. So I was like, okay, if all you're going to let me do is kickoff, like I'm going to be the best kickoff player in the world, right? Like it was like, okay, this is what we're going to do. And so I led the team in tackles and also found the new defensive coordinator at one of my gyms. He was a former pro player. So I bring on a new defensive coordinator. He can't play me because the, you know, the head coach hates me. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, like I would try to avoid him so much that I would like ride to the games with the defensive coordinator who loved me and felt like the worst dude on the planet. Mm-hmm. And people would be like, oh, you don't, how'd you get so lucky? You get to ride to the game with the cheerleaders. And he's like, oh, oh mm-hmm. no. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's so many perceptions and so many challenges. And, you know, that year in and of itself, could have broken me. And mm-hmm. I remember we went to the championship game. We were undefeated to the championship game. We make it and we're playing Detroit. And Detroit was like a legacy team at that time. And it was a team we could have beaten. And I just remember thinking, wow, we're too cocky. And we hadn't done the work that we need to. And Detroit came out and punched us in the mouth. Mm-hmm. and. They beat us in that championship game. And the takeaway I had was I'll never be out prepared ever again because they knew us way better than we knew them. And it wasn't even a game that was particularly in my control because I was still at that left out place in the bench other than kickoff. But it imprinted me, you know, again, so deep. And yet we're trying and fighting. So then what happens is the guy I got to be the defensive coordinator becomes the head coach the next year. And he actually buys the team and he asks me to be his VP of marketing because that was what I studied at school. So here I am like banging on doors to radio stations and I have an all pro year that year. And I'm supposed to be now part owner of the team for sweat equity. Mm-hmm. And this, this is probably one of the toughest turning points for my early career because you know, we're about two weeks out and, and this guy comes to me and he's like, well, we don't have uniforms yet because ticket sales aren't that good. We don't have uniforms, right? And here I am, hardworking grinder. And he was like, yeah, don't you have a credit card? Oh, God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do. So all of the team uniforms max out my credit card. I'm running this gym that happens to be his buddy's gym. I am fully all in. And then with like, I think it was four weeks left in the season, right? I'm having an all pro year. I finally get on the field and I'm crushing it. I'm doing everything I need to do to get the team traction. And then the league, oh, I even pitched um, women's football to what was then called the Total Football Network. 
and went on to become the NFL network. So I'm in it. Like I think this is going to be my life, right? Like I'm going to be full football. I'm going to play, I'm going to manage, and I'm a part owner of this team. Like, boom. Mm-hmm. And then with about three or four weeks left in the season, the league calls me and tells me he's been embezzling money. He's going to be kicked out. And um, I am the only other officer. So I have to find a way to field the team for the rest of the season. But at the end of the season, it's the team is going to revert to the old owner. So I'm going to lose everything that I've worked for anyway. Mm. And add to that, when he gets kicked out of the league, I lose my job because it's his buddy and I'm still standing. So I get fired from the gym. I've still got to lead this team to finish the season and I'm still going to lose everything at the end. And I, I marched through that part, right? I did everything that needed to, we still fielded on the team. You know, we finished the season. We didn't end up going to the championship, which was devastating because the team had been there before. And at the end of the season, everybody was looking at me to how to pick up the pieces. And I, I didn't have it. I, I didn't have any more answers. Mm-hmm. I also had a maxed out credit card and, and I, I just, I was broken. And I remember I was dating somebody at the time and he said, well, I'm, you know, I'm going to move to either Dallas or Houston. He's like, why don't you just come? Like, you don't have anything else left here. And I was like, all right, fine. As long as they have football, I'll go. Because I, I, couldn't, I couldn't put it back together. I didn't have it. This sport had like been so much of me. And yet it was all taken away. My whole vision of what was worth working so hard for was gone in an instant. And, and, and you know, I know you end up making it back from that and, and to the NFL. Right. I mean, you end up um, a coach in the NFL after all of that. So, so how do you get from that low point to what appears to be like a really groundbreaking high point? You know, what, what happens that allows you to make that jump? So, I moved to Dallas. My first season, I played with a team called the Dallas Dragons, they were an expansion team. It was rough. And then three days later, I went to a tryout for the Dallas Diamonds. I made that team and was with them for 10 years. That was the legacy team that really changed my life. Um, We were a dynasty team. We won championships in 04, 05, 06, and 08. From there, I ended up having the opportunity to play on the first and second women's U.S. national team. All things that, you know, nobody even thought were possible, right? Meanwhile, I'm getting my PhD in the process. Because yeah, I was going to ask. So, so the PhD just comes in during all of this. And, yeah. and tell me, yeah, what was your thinking with that? So for me at that time, my life was work by day, play football by night, and go to school by very late night. And the reason that I got my master's in sports psychology and then my PhD is because there was no clear path for a woman in football, right? There were no female coaches in the NFL. Like there weren't women coaching in college, like all of these things. So what I thought is if I got a PhD and, you know, specialized in sports psychology and put that knowledge 
with the practical experience of being one of the best in the world, then I would create a unique value proposition. And that's really what it was. I, I could find a way to create something that would be unique and valuable in the space of football, even if, you know, getting paid a dollar a game in women's football wouldn't, wouldn't get me there financially, right? But the experience was priceless. So I ended up in 2013, for example, those two worlds really came together. I played for the U.S. national team for the second time, finally got my dissertation published, which was on the NFL's use of the Wonderlick in player selection. So even my, my research was centered around football. And then when we came back from winning our second gold medal, we were all told by the owner of the Diamonds going into a championship game that this would be our last game as Diamonds and that we better win because this was the end, you know, the end of a dynasty. And I don't know if she thought that that would be a motivating pregame speech, but I've never been on a team that got whooped so badly because you had people who had put so much into this team and all of a sudden you said like, it's going to be no more. So we got destroyed in that game and we all kind of left destroyed. You know, we were lost. And for me, I didn't know what that meant left. I mean, I'd, I'd done a lot in football, but man, that was the place that I felt great. And I get this call from a men's indoor team called the Texas Revolution. And I had no idea why they wanted to meet with me, but I agreed. And, you know, lovingly, I'm going to tell y'all, I did wear really tall shoes that day because I was going to be at least five foot four walking into that meeting. But I got there and eventually what I found out is that they wanted me to go through a day of training camp with their guys. You know, they wanted me to run through some ladders, catch some passes, get them some good media and essentially use my reputation in football to make them look like something and then be done with me. And that didn't really work for me. I kind of told them like, that's an insult to me as an athlete. And if I was any one of your guys, I would be insulted. If you want to do anything with me and your football team, either we do everything or we do nothing. And it was at that point that I caught the attention of the head coach who kind of like smiled for the first time. Up until that point, he was avoiding eye contact. Like I would go away if he didn't look at me. And it turned out that not only did I go through all of training camp, but I was on the team for the whole season. And that season really was how everything else happened. I learned how to be a great teammate with those guys, right? We learned each other. We became really close in a situation where everybody thought that they would hate it. And going into the next season, they had a brand new head coach, um, former Dallas Cowboy Wendell Davis, who actually saw how the guys responded to me and essentially grilled me on football. And then the next day said, you have to coach my football team. And I was like, no, girls don't do that. I'm not doing that. And he said, not a lot of guys are going to give you this opportunity. You're taking this job. Mm -hmm. So I tried my very best to turn him down. He wouldn't let me. And then he would, he told me he was taking the job for me. And I better not let the narrative be. We had a girl once and she quit Mm -hmm. because boy, oh boy, did he tap into my psychology on that one. 
because mm-hmm. I may not have seen myself that way, but I surely wouldn't quit. Mm-hmm. And so I'm coaching in arena when Sarah Thomas was announced as the first full-time female ref in NFL history. Mm-hmm. And a reporter asked Bruce Arians if he could ever see a female coaching in the NFL. And his mm-hmm. response was essentially the second a woman proves that she can make these guys better, she'll be hired. Mm-hmm. So after talking with my head coach who said, well, we should call Bruce. Can you get me his number? I eventually got on the phone, mm-hmm. um, got through to Bruce's assistant and, you know, kind of called the Cardinals on behalf of myself as if I wasn't myself. You know, that day I was not an assistant coach. Well, I still was, but, you know, we have a lot of jobs in Arena. We don't have that big a staff. I was also an assistant and I left a message for Bruce on behalf of my head coach. And he called him back after the draft. So it was about two weeks later and said, tell me about this girl. Mm-hmm. And he eventually invited me out to OTAs and, you know, he really moved that needle to make it happen. Wow. That, that's awesome. And, and good for you for like making it happen too. Tell, tell me how hard was it? What was it like? You know, you're, you're at the, the top now, and this is a male-driven business in every aspect. Uh, certainly, at that time, it's still pretty unique today. So, what was it like? I couldn't have asked for a better experience in terms of like internally with the staff and with the players, right? Like one of the the receivers coach at the time, Daryl Drake. I remember he calls me into his office my first day. First of all, he didn't even need to have any interest in me whatsoever because I'm a defensive girl. Usually, you know, we we don't cross those lines, right? But Drake calls me into his office and he's like, tell me about your master's. Tell me about your PhD. And I was kind of like, and you are, right? Like, it was like whiplash. Like, whoa, hey, buddy. Mm -hmm. And he said, I want you to know something. He's like, it's not going to be common for someone to have that experience, to have that master's, to have that PhD. And I think it's one of the most valuable things that you bring to this team. I think every team needs it. So -hmm. you're going to have a unique perspective on a lot of situations. Trust that and don't, don't, don't lose that, right? Don't, don't be afraid to use that to your advantage. And then he told me about, um, Drake had a master's Um, And he told me about when he was with the Chicago Bears and he coached Brandon Marshall and how much that had taught him about the utility of psychology in coaching. And did the players respond to that? I mean, were they, were you able to tap into that psychology, that PhD, that, that, that knowledge and, and get the players to respond to it? Or was there a lot of resistance to just you being a woman or both? Well, you know, I think, so the players really didn't have any resistance to me being there. Like that was one mm-hmm. of the things that everyone on the outside really thought it would be a problem. Meanwhile, the guys were so proud of being a part of history. That's great. That's and great. Being a part of change. Like they were stoked. And you know, you're good as an athlete when they know everything about you. Mm-hmm. Those guys had done their research. Mm-hmm. They had watched my game tape. Yeah. They knew that probably the biggest thing that the two things that they were the most interested in 
were actually that I had played against guys because that was like major street cred. And they loved the PhD in psychology, right? Those guys want to be better. So a lot of the questions that I might field would be less about X's and O's and more about that or about their lives, yeah. right? Like people talk just about- Just a lot of respect there. They just respected you. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, one of the things that I had studied in my master's was coach-athlete communication, mm-hmm. leadership styles, and, and development. And so- authenticity in that was always really important to me. And so I always told them, like, I'm going to be honest to you, my job is, or with you, my job is to help you, whether it's a person or a player, right? Nothing is off limits. So whether it was dealing with coming back off an injury, which very few people have understanding on, right? And can make a player feel very isolated or something that was going on at home, like if we have trust developed, then of course you're going to listen to technique, right? So we actually had amazing relationships and still do because of that. And I've had players who I coached in Arizona have other guys who I never coached be like, hey, you know what? Talk to coach Jen. She'll get it, Mm -hmm. right? Like that's it. That's it. Like she'll get it. Yeah. And not being part of kind of that that normal political part, um, you know, is kind of a blessing and a curse, I guess. But. Oh, yeah. Well, it, I, it's I think both, but m- mostly a blessing, and and um, it's really a great story, and and I'm really uh, happy to have heard all of it. It makes total sense. I mean, this is just who you are, and and there's and, and you're a high achiever. You were born that way. Your your family upbringing, you then not only you know had all of that, but you you put it to work. You, you took the steps, the tough steps, to make it happen, and it's really great to to hear. Uh, tell me a little bit, just as we start to wrap up, um, you know what what's today look like? What's the future look like? I know you're out in LA. Talk to me about where you are, what you're working on, and and kind of you know where where the future uh, is taking you. Yeah. Well, you know, I think for so many people, um, this has been just a, a really tough time. And, you know, for me, it put a lot of things to an abrupt halt, right? I was used to being, you know, speaking and consulting on the road, like, you know, 20 days a month, plus running football camps, which is something I'm really passionate about. You know, I started Gridiron Girls football camps for girls, and we've done 35 across the country. And all of the sudden, all of those things become like, right, you can't do yeah, that. Right. right. And, you know, so trying to figure out, for me, it was where can you have impact and where can you, you know, use the talents that you have in a different way. Um, and so to me, what that became is seeing that adults were busy adulting, right? They're looking at big problems. And like, I have friends that were like doing huge things, whether it be sewing masks, I don't sew, or, you know, sourcing PPE from other countries. None of those were things that I felt like I had value or unique value in. And yet all I could picture is as everyone was looking up at these giant problems, like the little kids were sitting there pulling on their sleeves, like, what about me? Right? Because 
you know, part of my background when I got my master's and PhD was in play therapy to really help the youngest among us absorb things. And then they do, they don't always, they can't always express it, but they feel it and they internalize it. And so knowing what was going on in this pandemic, um, I ended up teaming up with one of my really good friends and creating a kid's book series to help the kids, you know, and we call it Critter Fitter, using critters to help kids get fitter through motion and emotion, right? So looking at some of these tough situations, whether it's social distancing and all of a sudden you can't hug your friends, right? Which I know is hard for me too, and the kid inside of me, right? But, you know, what does that feel like? And can you create something to facilitate the conversation? So we created a series that taps into those questions. And to me, that was like a a new way to find voice. So we have four now. This one is actually physical motion. Mm -hmm. um, And it's like animal-based exercises to get the kids to move because that's a, a real challenge having to stay inside, right? I... And I just listened to my parents, my friends who were parents. Um, mm-hmm. And they were like, the kids are bouncing off walls. I was like, great. We'll give them something to do while they're stuck inside. When a ladybug can't hug was on social distancing and feeling isolated. Yeah. Right? Yeah. This one, which has become really actually very helpful and a lot of schools are talking to, wearing a mask says, I love you. It goes through the CDC guidelines to help kids understand because wearing a mask is weird. So if you need them to do it to reopen society, then let's explain it. And then this one, which is a sneak peek, because it's not even out yet. Um, it actually just went live on Kindle, is the resilience. Mm-hmm. And this really talks about kind of the plan to reopen society and breaks down some really complex things like antibodies and testing and quarantine in a fun, approachable way. Because if kids can be a proactive part of the solution, then we can kind of move back into society in, in a better way. But yeah. a lot of parents are struggling with like, especially homeschool and balancing some of that now. So. Yeah, well, th- this is really great. So Critter Fitter, and you can find it on uh, Kindle, it's on Amazon. Amazon. Yeah. yeah. And, 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 you know, again, just another example of how you've pulled on these threads. I mean, there's the creativity piece, right? There it is. I mean, I'm looking at the covers, the whole thing. You're solving problems. You know, COVID comes, it, it kills what you're doing, but you have a grit, a determination. Uh, I'm going to win. I'm going to play at a high level. And um, now, you know, doing it in this really creative way of service is really uh, admirable. So, Hey, Jen, thanks again for taking the time to share this story. Any final thoughts before we wrap up? I I really appreciate uh, having you on today and um, anything else you want to share? Yeah. Um, Sure. Um, I think one of the things that I hope anybody would pull from my story, um, whether it's along the way or now, is first, it's not everything great has this this roadmap where you can predict it. In fact, a lot of the times it doesn't, right? I couldn't set that big goal and work backwards that most people say is goal setting. But what you can do is work to create the best version of yourself so that as opportunities come along or you create them, 
you're in a good position to step up and take them. And it's not always going to work the way you thought it would. Or, you know, like I said, that early time with the mutiny, I thought that was it. And when it was gone, it would have been very easy to, to close up shop. Motivation isn't constant, especially not now. But I also laugh when people say, how did you not quit? And, and I kind of lovingly tell them, I might have quit like four times in a day. I just quit at quitting too, right? Yeah. Because I quit doing it that way, but maybe something slightly different. Mm-hmm. So don't be afraid of that, you know? And that's the beauty of life is really developing those different facets of yourself. And in these times, especially, find one place where your unique talents can elevate either, you know, your family, your circle of friends, or the world at large. And that's what you can control. Too much of it we can't, but you can control you and those unique talents you have. And that's all I've tried to do in this time. Awesome. Great messages, uh, Dr. Jen Welter. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. That's what I meant. Thank you for being here. (laughs) Thank you for listening to the Gravity Podcast. Please subscribe to the show at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about the entire Gravity Project, please go to gravityproject.com. Please check out the podcast on Instagram at The Gravity Podcast. Music heard of the show is provided courtesy of Kyle Lamoro and Oliver Oak.